It was 23 years ago today. I walked into a church, not a kind of a strange thing for a pastor to do, right? Uh, but I was wearing a tuxedo. And I remember when I first came in, I came in alone. Uh, there she was. You're not supposed to see the bride before the wedding, but she was kind of passing from one room to the next. And so it was just us in the, the vestibule, in the narthex. And so we kind of stopped and stared at each other. And we approached each other and we just embraced for a few moments. Um, she went on, then she had to go see her girls. And I remember standing there, overwhelmed with emotion, uh, overwhelmed with excitement and joy, and overwhelmed with fear. What was I getting myself into? Oh, please, God, let this work. Uh, yeah, you know, it, I was, we went on our honeymoon the next day. Uh, we missed our plane. We, someone had given us tickets to, to San Diego, so we went there, and we had been burning the midnight oil for weeks before we uh, left, doing all of our own wedding stuff and closing our classes and everything else. Uh, by the time we landed, Teresa was sick. I mean, she had eye fever, both ends come out. She was, it was just a mess. And so me, being the Romeo I, I was, I had already set us up in, right next to the airport, this hotel. I think it was the, the Norman Bates Hotel. And so we were hanging out in there. I'm literally running all over San Diego trying to find a pharmacy because the only way I know to fix stuff is just drug yourself until you, you get better. So that's what I'm trying to do for my new bride. Uh, she starts feeling a little bit better. We rent a little red sports car and we drive up to Hollywood. You know, thought that would be cool. We thought we were so cool. And we're up on the mountain and uh, she sees a lemon tree. And never saw a lemon tree, but just thought lemons were found in the store. And so she stopped the car. So I put on the brakes and she jumps out. She's going to go get herself a lemon. And uh, there's signs, though, all over the place. You know, don't step on our grass. We've got armed guards here. You know, it's just really armed guards all over. I'm thinking, no, don't get killed on Tom Cruise's lawn. Come on, back. Let's go. We, we, we take off. We, we go on back. We get to uh, the map. We see if we go up just a little bit and cut over, we can knock off the bottom of the Sequoia National Forest. Now, you would assume that the Sequoia National Forest is a forest of sequoias, right? That would make sense to me. Okay, I've always wanted to see the giant redwoods. Let's do it. So we go up a little bit. We cut off the bottom of the Sequoia National Forest. It's nothing but a honking desert. There's not a tree in the whole Sequoia, at least not where we were. And so I thought, well, let's just go up a little bit through the Sequoia National Forest trying to find the, the giant redwoods. Well, nothing. So we cut over into Bakersfield. I said, where are the sequoias? Duh, they should be in the Sequoia National Forest. I've heard about California. And he said, no, 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 it's five hours north of here. Oh, man. So we lay out by the pool that day. I, I fall asleep. I get burned like a lobster. I'm, I'm in our, the, 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 the room that night going, ah, don't touch me. Meanwhile, I got her stomach flu. So both ends, I'm, ah. She gets a relapse. Really, that night, we're in separate beds. Going, oh, throwing up. And it's a big mess. Next morning, though, is Easter. Now, I, you always go to church on Easter. So I got up. We're going to church. And she's, she's like, are you crazy? We're not going to go to church. I said, yes, we go to church. And so we have this, our first huge battle. And then I, I, I told her, I said, honey, if Jesus can get out of the grave, you can get out of bed. Not the thing to say, gentlemen. Please just know that. Don't model me on that one. Now, I had never been married before, so I wasn't sure how this was supposed to work. But I watched enough TV to know how it wasn't supposed to work, and that was this. 
you know, on, on TV, you know, the, the, the beauty gets the beast, right? And everyone's singing and happy, and, and, and Jasmine rides off on, and into the sunset on Aladdin's carpet with Aladdin, and Cinderella gets Prince Charming. Everyone's happy and singing. And, and then you got your teeny bopper movies that always end up in romance of some way. And then you've got your adult chick flicks, which are really just the other two, but more and more matured. And you've got uh, some, they're, they're, they're embracing at the end, they're riding off in a car that says just married, or they're in a boat, or, but the, everybody's singing and happy and smiling. It's, it's happily ever after. But those movies never show you what that relationship is like in six weeks, do they? No, or six months, or six years. Oh, it might be more like Dr. Phil fodder, right, than a, than a feel-good flick. Uh, but we've got this obsession with happily ever after. Our music industry helps that, doesn't it? Our, our, our publishing industry it's amazing. If you read the, the, the trade journals, and when the recession hit, of course, everybody was, was hit with this thing in the publishing industry as well. But one sector of the publishing industry was not hit. Guess what it was? By their own trade journals, it says that uh, publishing industry lost ground in the recession. Romance fiction sales were strong at $1.37 billion. In 2009, romance fiction remained the largest share of the consumer market with 7,311 new titles. No fiction category can rival romance in terms of sheer size. Uh, everybody's been telling us that we need a happily ever after from the time we're born all the way through music. And, and we, we got it. We know. And so when it doesn't happen to us, what, what do we do? Well, either A, we fall into despair. The reason why, you know, I didn't get a happily ever after is because I married the wrong person, right? I mean, Jasmine gets one, and Hilary Duff gets one, and Sandra Bullock gets one, and Tom Hanks gets one, but do I get one? No, no, so I married the wrong person. See, that's the problem. So we got to fix this. Or we go into cynicism, where we think, you know, happily ever after, that's an illusion from Hollywood. That's not real. It's like the pot of gold at the end of the, the, the rainbow. Nobody finds it because it's not real. And so we bury ourselves in our jobs and in our hobbies and in our kids and some great cause just giving up on that arena. Now, good news. I believe biblically not only is happily ever after a, a possibility, it's what we were wired for. And God's understanding, it's normalcy. Now, you might be here this morning. Let me kind of deviate for a second. You might say, hey, 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 I'm a junior high kid, okay? I'm not, not married right now, and I'm not planning on getting married anytime real soon. My parents would kill me. So you know what? This is just going to be a snooze series for me. No, 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 no. If you have never been married before, but you hope to one day, this is an incredibly important series for you to begin to see marriage through God's eyes before you enter into it. Incredibly important. Now, if you're single again, or whatever circumstances you're in, you're saying, you know what, I'm not looking to get remarried or get married at this point in history. Uh, this is going to be a snooze series for me. No, no, no. Because you probably have grandchildren or children or friends, people that, whose world you're in that God expects you to speak into. Keep in mind, the person in the Bible who spoke more about marriage than anybody else was a single man, the Apostle Paul. Yes, God might have you there for that very purpose, but you need to be sure you represent him properly. So this series is very significant. Now we want to give you three presuppositions as we start into the series. First presupposition is this, that marriage was created by God. It didn't evolve in the late Bronze Age. It is not a societal way of developing and determining land rights. 
even though every wedding will look different based on the, the culture that it's in, marriage is not bound by culture. It was created by God. There's no priest or rabbi or pastor that really has a hand in this thing because God said that, that what he bound together, he determines this. He did not, he instituted the church and he instituted marriage. He did not institute business or hospitals or libraries or education. Those, we, we are free to run those however we see fit within ethics and general biblical norms. Innovation rules. But in a wedding, in a marriage, innovation does not rule. We, we have to run it by God's perspective. So God created this. Number two, you need to know this, that everybody who approaches the altar does so with baggage. Everybody. You have, when you get married, a, a, a philosophy of, of marriage. Now, it may not be articulated. You might not think you do, but based on your family that you grew up in, your grandparents, your friends' family, your friends' television, your, your teachers in school, whatever, all of that put together puts, puts, puts your philosophy there. And now you need to know this about your philosophy. It's wrong. You've got one, and it's wrong. And problem is, the person you're going to marry has got one too, and guess what? Theirs is wronger, right? No, no, no. They have theirs is wrong as well. <laughs> So God created this. You go into it. No one goes into it tabula rasa. We go into it with the philosophy. And, and number three, unless we can see marriage through God's eyes, it's not going to work. Uh, it, it's, it's not going to reach the potential it could reach. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Would you think about getting uh, into a cockpit of an airplane and throwing the operations manual away, saying, you know what? I'm going to fly this baby however I want to fly it. I've seen other people fly. Come on, I'm watching off TV. Anybody can do this. Now, even if you could get the thing off the ground, which I doubt, what's the possibility that you're going to get where you need to go and that you're going to land this baby safely? <laughs> That's not a lot of... Odds are not good there, are they? We would never think of throwing away the operator's manual. We need to see this through God's eyes. And so that's the goal of this series. Now, uh, first thing we want to look at real briefly this morning is we want to look at the enemy of happily ever after because there is an enemy. And unless you recognize what it is and disarm it, you can shoot at a lot of other things, but it's not going to have the impact that it it could have. So we want to start this morning by looking at the very first wedding in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Would you turn with me in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2? Very first wedding. By the way, the Bible starts with a wedding. The Bible ends with a wedding. And there's lots of weddings in between. So God is not uh, immune to this idea. He created it. Remember verse 18, chapter 2. It says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. See, this was why he did all this naming thing, just so Adam would realize. There's two rhinoceroses and two giraffes and and two mosquitoes. But there's only one of me. Where's the other one of me? 
this is where he needed to be. So God got him there. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of man. And he brought her to the man. Notice this new generic bride here. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now, if ever there's going to be a happily ever after, this is it, right? You got Mr. Perfect marrying Mrs. Perfect in a perfect environment, an environment built for them. There's this pain-free, no financial stress, sin-free. This was perfect. How could this possibly go wrong? Ah, but it does, doesn't it? In Genesis chapter 3, you see the serpent talking to Eve. And the serpent says, hey, you're eating all this pathetic fruit in the garden, but have you seen this tree over here? Oh, man, it's bigger than the rest. And the fruit looks better than the rest. It's obviously the best. How come you're not touching this one, Eve? And she said, oh, yeah, that tree. Well, God said we can't touch that one or we're going to die. And the serpent says, die? What's, what's die, Eve? Now, why do you think God would keep you from the obvious best? Now, isn't this what all sin is about? God's keeping me from the best, so I've got to go get it. Why do you think God's keeping you from the best, Eve? He knows this is the God tree. How do you think you got to be God? If you eat of this tree, you can become God. You make the rules. You don't worship. You're worshipped. So she takes and she eats and she gives some to her husband. He eats and suddenly they realize, Scripture says that they are naked. And then they hear God walking in. You know, boom, boom. I don't know what kind of noise God makes. But anyway, they see God, they hear God coming. And so they hide. Ah, he's going to catch us. And so they hide. And God says, how come you're hiding, Adam? And he says, because I was naked and I felt ashamed. And so God says this to him. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, now, wouldn't this been a great place for Adam to say, yes? <laughs> yes, we failed, Lord. But what's he say? That woman. Started on, God, listen, I told her. I told her. I told her. She never listens to me. This is not my fault. It's her fault. Now, now this is why, though, Adam's uh, excuse is, it doesn't, doesn't work. He doesn't fly high because in 3.6... It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. This whole time, Eve's talking to the serpent. Adam is standing right next to her. The whole time. Now I can hear Adam, oh, it's a woman's fault. She ruined out. We kicked out of the garden. It's your fault. You never listen. You're just doing well, common. You're so just, just taking things by, the, by your emotion and not thinking this through. What is the problem? And then she would shoot back maybe. Listen, cowboy, you're supposed to eat this thing, man. And God didn't talk to me. He told you and you were right there. Why didn't you step in? I would have given you the reins. What's the problem? And they were shooting at each other. And then they get a little bit more spiritually discerned here, don't they? They shoot at God. And by the way, God, it's that woman that you gave me, remember? I mean, I would have taken anybody. Listen, anybody that I was sure you led to me, I'd have married. But you brought me this person. You knew she was going to do this. You knew she was going to be like this. God, why did you do this to me? You set me up. What else could I do? It's your fault. 
That's what, now we say this kind of thing to God all the time, don't we? Why wouldn't God protect me from this? Why, why wouldn't God? Why wouldn't God? We blame God. That's what they're, they're, they're doing. We think this is legitimate. This is right. Now notice what the problem is here. Notice what it's not. Communication technique? No. Sexual dysfunction? No. Is it the fact that he was a morning person and she was an evening person? Or he liked to squeeze the toothpaste in the middle and but she at the end? Or he wouldn't put down the toilet seat? Was that the problem? That wasn't the problem here. Was the problem that he had like the toilet paper that would pull from underneath and she wanted it from on top, which is the right way, of course. Is that what was going on? Or was it maybe that he liked to hang with his, his bowling buddies and she couldn't cook? Or, or he was a slob and she was a perfectionist? Or she always wore that, that, that thick flannel thing and he wanted her wear the other skimpy? Is that what was? That was not the problem. Now, this is why this is important for us. Because we look at those things in a boatload more, don't we? And we say, that's the issue. She's a spender. He's a, that's the issue. If we can fix that thing, then we'll solve our issues. And so we spend, we've got a gazillion books written about, and we spend all our time focusing on those things. And we probably should focus on some of those things. That's not wrong, but that's not the enemy of happily ever after. Here's the deal. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, Scripture lets us know that inside our hearts were born with a sin nature, which is a, a radical commitment to self-centeredness. I am looking out for number one. Look at, what's the way Frederick Buchner says it? It says, original sin means we all originate out of a sinful world which taints us from the word go. We all tend to make ourselves the center of the universe. We all do this. Not just your spouse. We all do this. One of the, the foremost counselors in Christianity today is Larry Crabb. Larry says that when he started out with this marriage counseling, counseling, he was sure that the problem was in marriages a, a woundedness in the, the, the souls and the identities of individuals that needed to be healed first, and then the marriage would be healed. In his book, Men and Women, this is what he says. He says, we will not move very far in our efforts to develop good marriages until we understand that repairing a damaged sense of identity and healing the wound in our hearts is not the first order of business. It is rather dealing with the subtle, pervasive, stubborn commitment to ourselves. Tim Keller, he's the pastor at Redeemer Prez in Manhattan, one of the leading evangelical voices today, says this. He says, the main barrier to the development of a servant heart in marriage is the radical self-centeredness of the sinful human heart. Self-centeredness is a havoc-wreaking problem in many marriages, and it's the ever-present enemy of every marriage. Stanley Harris, uh, he's an ethics professor at Duke. This is what he says. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage is necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This normal assumption fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We always marry the wrong person. And this is why. We always do. Because at my heart, I've got agenda. My agenda is me. Whoever else I would marry, person B, they've got an agenda. And their agenda is them. And so we get married. and It doesn't work. I tell my kids two things. I said, now when you get married, you've got to know, know this. Start with the presupposition. A, you're going to marry the wrong person. Now, don't, make a, don't marry the wronger person, all right? Get a, do the best you can, lots of things. But, but you're going to marry the wrong person, someone who's committed to themselves. But no second assumption, presupposition, is that you are the wrong person as well. You are the wrong person. The issue here is, is a radical 
self-centeredness. That is the, the enemy of happily ever after. So how do we deal with that? Well, Scripture lets us know that our example is Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better consider, consider others better than yourself. Now, when he talks about this idea of selfish ambition, this is really the, the, the phrase deals with competitive nature. It, it deals with, I win, you lose. I mean, I don't care if you win too, but I'm going to win here. Now, this is in all of our hearts, but we know that some of us are more competitive by nature. The problem with that is if you take that into your relationships, you're the one, you are the one who will lose. This selfish ambition it talks about, it means I'm best. My way is best. My solution is the better one. My understanding on this thing is the correct one. My perspective. See, yours is false in here. But see, I've got the right perspective here. And Scripture says if you go into your relationship with that kind of a mindset... You're going to sink it. Instead, verse 4, he says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can you imagine a man and wife who are committed to these two verses? Where they, they've, they've come to grips with the gospel, they've accepted Christ, and then they've said, You know what? Regardless of everything else, we are going to nail these two verses. And both of them are doggedly committed to this. What would that marriage look like? And you say, precisely, see, that's the problem. If I commit to this, I know my spouse won't. And so what do we do with that? I mean, that, that, that person's not going to come around, and so I'm going to do this, and they're not going to reciprocate. Well, what then? Well, First Peter. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. He's saying you can't influence your spouse. You can influence your spouse, but notice how you don't do it. No nagging, no, no complaining. We, we want to influence our spouses, but you know how we often, where we often go, usually based on this self-centeredness, we go to manipulation. We're squealing the tires, we're slamming the door with withholding sexual intimacy. We are complaining, we are guilty, we are shaming, we are crying. Uh, we don't think of it as manipulation, but that's what we're doing because we're trying to change their outward behavior to satisfy us. So we're accomplishing, and we need to know this. We might, with our manipulation, alter external behavior, but you always lose with that because they're not stupid people, and they know what's going on. And so inside, the, the, the gap in intimacy gets further and further. It gets, it, it, you ruin what you really are after with manipulation. But if, in fact, we, we, we serve the other person, we can influence. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Nativity Story. Nativity story, obviously, based on Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. Uh, but they use a little creative license, so let me quote out of this movie and just work with me. In the movie, Mary is not real pleased that she's got to marry Joseph. Uh, it's not that she hates the guy, but, you know, she still wants to be a kid. She doesn't want to be a mom yet. No, she, that's not where she wants to go. And so she just wants to still be a little girl, and she's pledged to this guy she hardly knows, and oh, man, okay. But Joseph in the movie is very sensitive to her and kind, and he understands, and he's given her room. Well, at one point, Mary's expecting Jesus, and so Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth, and as they're going, he's only got a little bit of food. 
And so he makes sure Mary gets some. And then he takes his and he gives it to the donkey. Because he wants the donkey to be strong so that it won't stumble and Mary gets hurt. As he's walking, Mary notices that his feet are bloodied. They're just hard. He's walking. But he's not complaining. Never says a word about it. Uh, at one point, they stop by a creek. And Joseph falls asleep. And Mary comes over to his feet. She takes off his sandals. And she gets the water. And she starts washing his feet. And she talks to Jesus in her womb. And she says, you're going to have a good father. You see Mary's heart in the, their turn, go, uh, 180. Because, not because Joseph demanded she be submissive and this is what God ordained him, but she saw his, his selflessness. That's what changed her mind. I know, Therese, every single year, well, she's not in here, but every single year we've been married, she has grown spiritually. I mean, every single year. I think it's not going to happen. It can't. And she does. And what does that do to me? Well, it it convicts me. It makes me want to be better. I know she's not preaching and nagging, but I'm watching the way she's living. So I want to, to be like that. There's a power that we have with our spouse, but it's self centeredness, self selflessness. It's what has to be part of it. Now, you say, well, okay, well, how far does this go? I mean, I try to do this stuff, and what if they don't change? How long do I do this? Well, that's a good question. Let's keep going. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider himself equal with God or something, equality with God, something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. By the way, that means he emptied himself. When we talk of somebody who is uh, arrogant, it's all about me. What do we say about that person? They're full of themselves. Jesus emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He wasn't forced on him per se. He chose this. You know as well as I do, you can get into marriage, but you still have to daily choose to be the other person's servant. It doesn't just happen. Listen, the the solution here is to stop serving ourselves and to start serving our spouse This is the extreme that we go with it. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Ephesians 5 lets us know, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It wasn't about his comfort. He left his comfort for his bride, the church. This is our job as spouses. When you get married, it's not about this person fixing me and taking care of me. You sign up to serve and minister. That's, that's, that's the goal. And this, you say, well, I do this, I'm going to get walked down the rest of my life. Well, verse 9 says, Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, he does not promise that your spouse will come around. What he does promise, though, is there is a level of glory for obedience. Somehow, in some way, God will honor uh, your obedience to him in this regard. When I was... uh, a student at Columbia Bible College in the mid to late 80s. President of the school was a guy by the name of Robertson McQuilkin. Some of you all may have heard of Robertson McQuilkin. 
Now, at that, Robertson and his wife Muriel were missionaries in Japan. They had come back so he could take the presidency of this school. And what he did, he wrote a couple of books that ended up becoming bestsellers in the evangelical world. And so his popularity began to skyrocket. People were, were requesting his speaking presence internationally. He was on this major international speaking circuit, uh, encouraging people with missions and the word of God. And the, the attendance at the school was, you were on a waiting list to get into this place, building expansion. It was really flourishing in a major way. Now, at the same time, Muriel, his wife, earlier she'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, and at this point, it was starting to get into the later stages And so he was saying, you know what, taking care of Muriel is a 24-7 job for me. And many evangelical leaders told him, said, listen, you know what, you've been a good husband, but not enough is enough and all, but let's get her good good care because you can't sacrifice. And we're in the middle of of a building expansion here. The school is hopping. Your speaking is motivating people for missions. What's greater than that? God, you're being used by God. Don't let this sidetrack you from what God has you to do. And Robertson McQuilkin came to a crossroads. What should he do? Now I want you to see a YouTube clip on his decision. It takes just a second, but, but the video's not the greatest because of YouTube. But listen to what, what he did. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions. But uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror and when she can't get to me there can be anger she's in distress but when I'm with her she's happy and contented and so I must be with her at all times and you see it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part and I'm a man of my word But, as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I have said publicly, it's the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly. And you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. The line where he says, I don't have to. I get to. That's a heart of selflessness that Christ is talking about. As we start this series, perhaps this is where you need to start. Not by looking at your spouse and re-promising those things, but just between you and God. And saying, Lord, I, I, I know I promised this way back when, but I got busy and forgot and thought and life happened. But please, from the rest of my days down here, for, until you call me home, I promise to stop serving myself by your power and strength and to be serving him or her. Would you help me, 
Lord. Oh, you know, that's a prayer he wants to answer. And can you imagine what a testimony and what a witness we would have at our works and our neighborhoods and our families if folks saw that kind of uh, commitment to each other?